Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. Um, so what I've been, I've been asked to speak this morning on the topic of discipleship. So what this message is going to be, it's, it's in one way it's about how to disciple, which in, it could be um, a little bit awkward, but also you can look at it from the perspective of how to be discipled. So it's not just a matter of, I might be talking to some people specifically of how do we disciple people to be followers of Jesus, but also in this message there'll be enough for you to say, how can I be discipled? And the reason I call it the awkward art of discipleship is, is not that I'm awkward, it's, it's that discipleship's an awkward art, because discipleship is about um, character change. Um, most of us think that discipleship's about how to be a better preacher, that's not discipleship. That's just how to be a better preacher. Um, we think that discipleship's about how to um, deal with our money better. Well, that, that could be part of it. But discipleship's about all those awkward areas of your life and my life that often we don't see require change, but God and others do. And one of the advantages of a community, one of the upsides of a community is that you'll feel refreshed, built up, cared for, and loved. The downside is that people will take you on at times and challenge you. And the worst thing you can ever do when you're challenged is get reactive and, and start to get um, resentful. It's, well, they said this about me. How dare they? If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to be open to embarrassing, awkward conversations that pin you where you are in your character and behavior. I still get taken on by people. I'm 68 years old, and I still get told off. And I find it sometimes incredibly annoying. I find it embarrassing but I find it necessary to my growth and development. You're never too old to be challenged and changed. And if you are, you'll, you will ossify in your, in your following of Jesus. You'll just stop. You'll, you'll become brittle and useless to yourself and others around you. So in some ways, this could be taken as how can you allow others to disciple you? And that's why we have small groups and and, and relationships. The, the church is not a social event. The church is an event where God's presence turns up so that God's people can both reflect Him and be changed by Him. If the church is nothing more than a social event, then we've missed the purpose of church. And church should be filled with social events. That's not, that's not my point. But if that's all it is, then we will never change. And when, when I'm talking about change, I'm talking about your bad habits. I'm talking about your anger, your frustration, your carelessness, your side swipes at others. I am, I am a classically cynical person. Uh, I don't know what classically cynical is, but I, it sounds like it's legitimate. But it's not legitimate. It doesn't work. Now, cynicism can help you a little bit. It helps you not be taken in by, by fools and becoming a fool. But if you push it too far, it, you end up mocking everything of value. So, um, so I'm cynical by nature, so I have to be challenged in that. And one of the things that's been so good for me is to be around Phil Pringle. Because Phil is, um, he is, um, I'm just thinking, he's inordinately positive. It's just wrong. It's, it's just like, it's relentless positivity. And, and it's, it's just like, I can't live like that. But it's, it's changed the way I live. Because it knocks away at certain character faults in myself. Being married, you've got to be able to be open to your partner's shots. Valerie has helped me. 
But of course, I've helped her much more. No, not really. So let's get to the scriptures. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. I'm just looking at my time. And Jesus came, not my time as in how long I've got to live, but just the time up there. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? If it actually had how many days I had to go up there. That'd be really odd. I mean, I'd be out of here straight away to the beach. Um, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Bracket, because of this, end of bracket, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in or into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them, so there's two thoughts, baptizing us into the Trinitarian life of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which is about deep, deep community, partly. And then teaching them to obey, and there's a word that we hate. Now, we'll obey a road sign, and we'll obey a police officer, but we don't want to obey the Scriptures. Um, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. These are strong words. Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Not like teaching them to consider what I have suggested to you. It's not that. Teaching them to obey what I have commanded you. Now that's, that, that's why people who say being a Christian is a cop-out has never been a Christian. Much harder to be a follower of Jesus than not. The road that's wide is much easier to stumble along than the, than the narrow road. It'll require much more of you. Command that I've commanded you. And I've put in a live it, teach it, not merely life skills, but obedience to the words of Jesus. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. That was because the Holy Spirit was with them. They had to remember it, though. They had to remember that all of those, um, what I'd call the dark times and the kind of bland times. There's plenty of those. You have to remember that the Holy Spirit is with you. But more can I say, he's with us. Not just you, it's us. So I would think, and I'm just going to read from my notes where I need to, the making of disciples is due to and possible by the authority the Father has given the risen Christ and his presence that is with us by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, can I be honest, we'd be spitting into the wind. How could a group of essentially untrained, non-philosophical laborers, workers, and a few tax gatherers, how could they possibly be entrusted after only three years with a program to change the course of history? It's ridiculous. Same goes for us. Not many famous, not many well-known, not many fabulous amongst us. Those of you who are, we resent you. The rest of us, we're just ordinary people in many ways. But it's, it's to the ordinary people God committed his Holy Spirit so that we could actually affect change. And look, even no matter what you think of Christianity, if you go back and there are some brilliant books out at the moment that talk about the profound world-changing influence of the Christian faith on Western culture. Western culture is taking a hammering, but it can only take a hammering by people who are safely settled in it. You go elsewhere into another culture and have a crack. See how you go there. And so Western culture is taking a hammering, and some of it needs to take a hammering, of course. There are, there are things called principalities and powers. There's the embeddedness of sin in human nature and life. I get all of that. 
But um, it just, it's, it's, it's odd to think that these, these disciples, these fishermen, could change the world. But uh, Going back quickly, if you ever want to read a really good book by a man who's not an outspoken Christian, may not be a Christian, his, his name's Tom Holland, not the little actor. <laughs> he, he might be a nice person. But we're talking about the tall, thin Englishman. And his name's Tom Holland, and he's an academic. He's an historian academic from England, and he's written a book called Dominion. And he's, and he's, not, he's not a confessing Christian. He's, he's probably kind of a lapsed Catholic. I'm not quite sure what that means. But he's not a confessing Christian by his own terms. And he's written this brilliant book called Dominion, and he shows how clearly Western culture has been deeply influenced by the gospel in every sphere where did it start with? Grumbling, bad-tempered, obnoxious fishermen and laborers and tax collectors and probably a murderer amongst them. There's, Simon the Zealot was not just a... Simon the Zealot was not a, woohoo, I'm zealous. <laughs> not, not, that's not, we're, not talk, we're talking about insurrectionist, murderer-style personality. So they, they were all... Of, so we would along with them, be spitting into the wind unless God filled us with his Holy Spirit. And it's strange to me still, Christians still have the deepest passion for the things that matter the most. Nearly all of our hospitals, nearly all of our education system has come out of Christianity. And even today, the church still does more than any government can possibly do. Because we have this deep beating heart about a thing, not just a commitment to a project or a, or a vision. I'm not committed to a vision. I'm committed to Christ. It's very different than being committed to a vision. All right, anyway, enough of that. Um, so uh, w why do we have this right to do this? Because the resurrected Lord's authority is our authority. With it, we're enabled to bring Christ's victory over sin and death to the world. How? By proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. The gospel pales the voice of philosophy, economics, political powers, etc. All nations can be made disciples. Is it interesting that most other great world religions have got stuck in their own um, cultural context, except for Christianity? It just rips through all of them. Why? Because we're not culturally bound. Now, I'm culturally bound. I'm Western. I'm a, I'm a big city Western boy, and uh, that's what I am. So I have, I have certain parameters that, that identify me as that, but my gospel is not bound, and your gospel is not bound. It crosses all the barriers. It's remarkable. Um, so in, I'm just going to go some, past some stuff on my notes if you don't mind because it, I find it fascinating but I don't think you will. Um, so the new disciples, they were to be immersed into the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. So how do you make disciples? The way that I would think most obviously is you live the life and you teach the life. That's the most obvious way to do it. So as they lived it and taught it both by their lives and their words... I think, I think one uh, great Catholic divine said something like, or someone once said, um, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. I mean, I think that's, that's cute, but it's far from biblical. I know what they're saying. They're saying, please live it out. Don't just say it. But I'd say, live it out and say it. Say it and live it out. So these new disciples, we're, we're to immerse people into the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that's different than immersing people into our theologies or our philosophies or our ideals because in a group like this our politics are going to be vastly different our, our preferences vastly different all sorts of things vastly different 
And if our pulpits become a place just to present that and present my ideas and my corner and angle on the scriptures, we're not going to present the counsel of God to God's people. So we immerse people into the Father, Son, and the Spirit, not into our programs and our priorities. And uh, we don't have time to talk about all of that means, but it's very large. Um, we don't want to just perpetrate a system or a programmatic faith or a lopsided influence that could be helpful um, and could have popular adherence, but may not do a lot of good in the long run. So um, here's a, good, here's a, a thought that I, I think more about this as I get older. Do our people know what immersion to the Father, Son, and the Spirit and the fundamentals of the faith are? During the early church, um, and I'm not sure this is um, a popular thought, um, but in the er- very early days, they were baptized very quickly. They say, what must we do to be saved? And, and generally, it had baptism involved in it. Baptism to us is like this uh, rather odd ceremony we do in front of our friends. It is odd, isn't it? You are now identifying with Jesus. Blunk. Blah, 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 Bring them out quickly. Um, don't leave them for three days. That's too, too rich an identification. Then they come out. And often people get filled with the Spirit, or they look, they're joyous, or they're just cold and wet. Um, but whatever it is, it's, it's, to me it's a deeply important ceremony. But it just looks odd. But when you got baptized in the, in the, in the times of the writing of the Scriptures, what you were saying is that I repudiate everything that went before, and I now join this new community of faith. That's very strong. So say, for instance, a Hindu... Um, and a committed Hindu becomes a d- disciple of Jesus. When they get baptized, their families read that very differently than our families do. Our families say, oh, isn't that cute? Oh, it's a bit odd. I hope he doesn't get, or she doesn't get too serious about this faith. It'll be good for them for a season. But when the families of a Hindu person look at it, they say, you have just um, died to us. You are dead to us. And they often, in many cases, become dead to that family because their identification, identification with Jesus now means identification with a whole new community, not just a private faith, not just a grand idea, but to Jesus himself. And that's a very serious point of conversion. We ask people to pray a prayer, I believe in it, I prayed it, it matters. But if that's all we ask, we're not taking them into the depths of a disciple of Jesus. When I became a disciple of Jesus, I lost everything that I had. And by the way, because I was 19, it wasn't much. (laughs) <laughs> better to get saved young there's less to lose <laughs> uh, that's not funny <laughs> it's harder when you get older because there's more you have to think you've got to lose and deal with and it's true but I, I, had, I was a drummer in a band and I loved the music it was my life and that's all I ever wanted to do and when I got saved I let it all go I'm not saying all musicians should, it was just me I had to let it go because I felt the Holy Spirit say to me so I followed Jesus into what I never knew. I couldn't see a thing in front of me except to follow him. I got baptized. My baptism was my richest spiritual experience around that season. I felt when I came out of the water that something had literally died in the water behind me. It was so flipping freezing, I'm not surprised. I came out of that water and felt this, I, I was a new person. And, and I never looked back. I lost all my friends, every one of them. To this day, I have never been able to lead any of, the, any of them to Jesus and none of them would be vaguely interested in me. So, that was, so there is a cost to, to be a follower of Christ. But, what, but then it's like you follow blindly, but then the Lord opens your eyes to your future. 
but you've got to take the initial steps. It's, um, anyway, so um, we, what are we going to baptise people into? Um, we've said that. Uh, we, we should prioritise with people worship and prayer, scripture, table fellowship, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, we have to include other elements, of course, in teaching and training, like a, a seminar about marriage is good. A seminar about uh, single life is good. A seminar about your money is good. They're good things because they help us kind of reorient our priorities and our lifestyles. Good, all good, but they're not the main voice. The main voice should always be God's, God's word. Paul, Paul was able to say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Because uh, you know why? They saw how he conducted his life, therefore they could do it. It's one of the things that d- disturbs me about preachers who are never at their home church except on a Sunday, is that people don't see them living out the life. They just hear a great voice, and some of them are great voices. They don't actually see the lifestyle lived out. They don't see their ups and their downs, their depressions, their angers, their humanities. They just, it's like, you've got to see that face to face. I've always been around great people, and it helps me, okay, that's how you think, that's what you do, that's how you live. It's always been a help to me, never a hindrance able to observe up close and personal uh, anyway. So our teaching, uh, the goal of our teaching is, is, as I said, the obedience to the words of Jesus. Everything I've commanded you, I think I made that point strong enough. Uh, if you were saying, well, what do you mean by the teachings of Jesus? Make life simple. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you immerse yourselves in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you'll discover a lifestyle that's actually um, in total contradistinction to this world. You'll find a lifestyle that's in contradistinction to a lot of Christian thinking too. Like Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And you know, these are, these are um, the, the way of the kingdom is slower. It looks like failure, but it ends up winning. Love always wins, but it has a high cost to it on the way through. But it always wins. The love and the, the ethic and the morality of the kingdom is of prime importance. Um, a British theologian called N.T. Wright, some of you read him, some of you heard of him, he says that most of Paul's writings were geared at two things in the actual epistles he wrote, the unity of God's people, which is just a sham throughout the world, and the ethic and morality of God's people, which is equally shameful. shameful. Um, I'm not setting myself up as a better example, I'm just saying that's, that's where the teaching of Jesus leads. Ethic, morality. Uh, not just how to do better in your business or how to get a promotion. Those things may be part of the kind of the wisdom of Scripture, but they're not the driving influence of Christ's voice to, to our lives, as far as I can see. Um, the methodology of Jesus. How did Jesus call disciples? This is interesting. I find this fascinating. Um, uh, he, did the, he did the choosing. They didn't. I don't know how that relates to where you're sitting, but he did the choosing. They didn't do the choosing. I find that fascinating. And by the way, there was no voting system, no personality profiles, no popularity polls that were consulted. Jesus saw something in people that others didn't. And he he drew it out of them. He called them into this lifestyle of discipleship. It involves um, uncomfortable. It involves, uh, this involves the uncomfortable and the often misunderstood concepts concepts of inclusion and exclusion. Jesus at points is utterly exclusive. He makes the choice. He sets the standard. We want him to be inclusive, to fit our standard, 
but he's not. He's quite different to that. He can be inclusive in ways that, that pale every one of us, but equally he can be exclusive in ways that shock every one of us. Um, so it, it's, it, it involves the uncomfortable. Um, kingdom life isn't particularly de- democratic, not primarily democratic. Um, democracy is a Western concept. It's a good one. It's the best of the ba- bad bunch. You know, somebody said, well, democracy is not the best form of government. Well, it's the best of the bad bunch because it's got people in it. And all the best philosophies collapse once people get a hold of them. And secondly, so he he invited people into his world. This is interesting. To be a discipler, you have to be comfortable with people around your world. To be discipled, you've got to be able to be included in someone who finds that comfortable. Um, in my world, it would be like eating with, traveling with, uh, being around. A lot of discipleship's incidental. It may be you're driving in the car um, with, with Mike and Gillian, um, and, you, and, you, and you're just chatting, and they'll just say something incidentally, and you go, wow. You put it in, wow. Just, well, it, they weren't sitting down teaching you from the front seat. With a little screen in the back, with you know maybe a little thing you could make notes on, but incidentally during the journey, there's the discipling process is happening, because um, most of Jesus' discipling was on the run. They were walking and talking. Can you imagine those? They would have been funny. They would have been weird. They would have been wonderful, walking the the, the dusty old roads from town to town. Lots of downtime. We don't do that today. We have lots of downtime where they would talk and where Jesus would say something about the kingdom of God that would have revolutionized their thinking as they were walking and talking. Now, classroom's valuable, but I don't think it's the most valuable. Um, around the table. You know, we've, the Western world's virtually forgotten what the table is. Now, I know this dates me, um, and it was for reasons economic. I, as a kid, never went out to a restaurant, ever. Never. Because they didn't exist well, not where I was from. And my parents grew most of our vegetables anyway, and they couldn't afford to take us to restaurants. It's, and, but most of, our, most of our learning about life was done around the table. And my richest memories around my mother, who was incredibly funny and very bright, around her sister, who was a stunning artist, and, and my grandmother around a table. And I'd just sit there listening to them. And they were funny and smart and gracious and kind. It's a pity that none of those things robbed off, but anyway, that's what happens. <laughs> so the situation becomes a teaching, doesn't it? More than just sort of a classroom or do this. Like if somebody says, I want you to do a course in discipleship, here's a book. Throw the book in the rubbish. <laughs> Find someone who knows a bit more about Jesus. You'll do a lot better. Unless the book's by me, and then read the book. <laughs> or by Jake. Then you're commanded to read the book. <laughs> Um, so hospitality, if you, want to, if you want to disciple people, let me tell you, hospitality is one of your main doorways. I am very suspect, I, in fact, I don't rate a leader who doesn't practice, practice hospitality, including using their own home. It's fundamental to discipleship. When you see me at my home, you get me. When you see me behind a pulpit, you don't. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority. Now, what I'm going to do, I'm I'm not going to do that because I'm going to skip past that and talk about what Jesus actually did 
when he dealt with his disciples. And uh, we won't read the scripture, but Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38, um, talks about Jesus exposing the hypocrisy and selfishness of the twelve. Um, and this was a major theme in Jesus' dealing with the disciples. Remember, these were young men. What things are hallmarks of young men? Aggression. I'm not being exclusive about this. And the reason I'm not including girls is because I'm not a girl. I uh, never wanted to be. Um, so they would be a sense of adventure. I'm not saying girls don't do these things. It's just I'm talking from a guy's perspective. Uh, it would be um, wanting, to be, wanting to be the best. Uh, you know, most men are very competitive. I'd say probably most girls are too, but most men are competitive. They want to be either seen or known. Um, I'm so competitive that I'll only do something that I know nobody else can win at, which is a weird way of doing it. So when I do sports, I'll go and do a solo sport. Nobody can beat me. I just don't like being beaten. So interesting that that, that ordinary manness was in the disciples. And that was exactly the thing that Jesus hammered time and time and time again. And he gave it to them. Um, uh, he, his words to Peter, for instance, when, when um, Peter was... Remember Peter, I think this is the scripture, when Peter went and he said in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then the Lord said to him, Jesus said to him, blessed are you, um, Simon Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my, you've, you've heard what God says about me. Now, Peter must have thought, oh, <laughs> I'm the man. I heard. The others didn't. I can imagine them strutting around the brothers. Well, a few verses later, he gets absolutely slain. So Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter said, well, no, that's not going to happen. We're, you and I are going to figure this thing. We're going to get rid of the Romans. We're going we're gonna to deal with this. That's how they thought. Their Messiah would be a political conqueror. So they were shocked when he wasn't. Because politics doesn't conquer the, the human dilemma. Crucifixion and forgiveness does. So anyway, so he's, he, he's he, Peter saying, well, that's not going to happen. You're not going to do that. Just calm down. You're getting a little bit overwrought. Probably had too many miracles happening, so just calm down. And Jesus turned around him and he said, get behind me, Satan. Because you don't savor the things that are from God, but the things that are from man. Isn't that wild? On one hand, he's being praised for his recognition of who Jesus is. On the other hand, he's been absent. Now, he did this to them publicly. Publicly. There'd be lawsuits. <laughs> Christians would sue Jesus for offending them. I'm not, I'm not being silly. They'd offend, they would, they would take, they said, this is nothing personal, but I'm suing your, um, your insurance company for offending me. Well, you'd never be a disciple if you can't deal with offense. You've just got to deal with it. You're going to be offended. Somebody's going to say something to you about your character that you can't see, but they see as destructive. That's what it is. That's what discipleship is. He was sternly rebuked publicly. Wow. He wanted position, recognition, and priority. It's this attitude that's the most toxic and most damaging in the people we disciple. Uh, this was a constant in the instructions of Jesus, the want to lord it over others. This is world power. It's corruption dressed up as benefit. 
and it's anathema to the purpose of God's kingdom where service is success and crosses the template. I want to read you some words from Solomon, um, considered one of the wisest men in the world, partly because he was, was an absolutely unwise man as well. He said these words, If you had responded to my rebuke, this is the father talking to his son, I would have poured out my heart to you. But obviously this person didn't, so he couldn't pour out his heart to him. And um, now I know this is, a little, this is a little bit odd, so let's just take this as speaking metaphorically. Blows and wounds cleanse away evil. Beatings purge the inmost being. <laughs> but this is a better one. And a rebuke impresses a man of discernment more than a hundred lashes of fool. A rebuke. Do you know that if you're wise, you can be rebuked? If you're unwise, whoops, just tottering to the side there. If you're unwise, you can't be rebuked. Rebu rebuke's a word that's out, gone out of our language. We've got quite 1984-ish about this. It's gone. But rebuke means to be held to account and sharply talked to about something. And I've seen good discipling use this, and it shocks a person. And sometimes a person is so stuck in bad behavior, they need like a shock to, oh, to awaken them. And uh, that's what Solomon's suggesting. Uh, here's one of the best. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. If all a person ever does to you is compliment you, that's all they ever do to you, you're in trouble. Um, now, in a litigious world, we have backed away from this form of training. We only encourage. But encouragement's half of growth skill. If, if we say encouragement's the way to grow a person forward, you're wrong. It's encouragement and correction. And, and Paul talks like in those very strong terms. It's barely half of what people require to change and grow into the image of Jesus. Encouragement is the main diet and as a means of discipleship um, is, is not known to either Jesus or Paul. They did not know that form of discipleship. They realized, as Solomon did, that some of the worst aspects of our humanity require the sharpest of reproofs to expose, correct, and heal. This is something that affirmative words have little power to affect transformation in. Now, of course, I, I mentioned it briefly. One of my hopes was that discipleship would be about my preferences, about my skills, or about my abilities, and, and the same for all of us. But actually, it's about our character, and especially in its messed up state. It's about those things that I can't see looking out from these eyes. It's about the things I consider normal but apparently not God. The weirdest thing about every one of us is that we think we're the only normal person in the world. I do. I think I'm the only normal person in the world. But clearly I'm not. not I'm not even normal. So, but we all tend to think that the template that we see out from is normal. Now, some of us may have had such bad backgrounds we realize it's too messed up to be called normal. That's probably not most. But it's, 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 it, what I consider normal can be seen by another person to be offensive or to be um, dismissive or to be rude or to be damaging. I don't see it. I live with me. I don't live with the effect of me. Does that make sense? I live with this creature, but I don't, I don't live with the effect it has um, over the years, my children have come to their father at times, and my kids range from the age of 44 to 36, and they come to dad, and they've said things to dad, like things that don't please them about their father. And, you know, it's quite humbling to be told by your children that you're being a selfish jerk. 
So I said, oh, I just praise you and thank you for that tremendous insight into me. They were right, but I couldn't see it. But they lived with it. They lived with the effect of the human being, Simon, not, not my personal impression of. And uh, I, only recently, my, oh, a few years ago, my girl said something. They said, we, we, we did not like what you did in that case, situation. Now, that was once where I stood up to them and said, I did what I did and I'm not backing down for it. However, they still were able to come to their father and say something. And, they, and my kids are strong enough in their own spirit to be able to take me on. And they have. And I don't think it's, and it's not like every day. And generally, I'm their dad and they look up to me and they love me. But there are times when, that, when they are annoyed with me or they think I may have done the wrong thing or said the wrong thing or I should have done this instead of that. And none of it's like world-changing sin, but to them it, was a, it affected them. And uh, so my children discipled me for a moment. Not for too much, though, not too much. <laughs> so they can never get the recording of this message. It'll only encourage the little blighters. And so I think that the awkward part, and I'm going to finish now, the awkward part about discipleship is that it challenges us. That's the awkward part. And it challenges us where we don't think we need to be challenged. Or it challenges us where we think we are broken and how dare anybody do say that to us. But it's, it's the effect of everything in us that, that affects other people. And so sometimes it, it, that all, all of our problems are brokenness. Just some of them may be more severe. So I think that discipling, if, if I looked at the scriptures, I'd say that the, the growth of the kingdom is premised more on that slow, gradual, you know, drip, drip, drip of discipleship than the big supernatural wow moments. I, I love the big supernatural wow moments, but they're not, the, they're not your daily fare. Your daily food is basically just getting on with and re, having the scriptures spoken to you, being challenged by them and helping them change where you are, change your motivations, so that you end up more like Jesus than like yourself. Um, there are some statements, I know what they're saying, but like, you know, Christianity helps you live your best life. I think, what a lot of nonsense. Christianity told me to die, not to find my best life. My, be my best life's a crock. My best life is not good enough. I know what they're saying. They're saying, you know, you know get up and do something that is more productive for... Um, has more good results. I, I, I get that. But as a philosophy, my best life, or, you know, live your best life, I get what's being said. And, and there are moments when we'd all agree with it. But there's something about it that's actually quite off the dial. It's when Jesus said, if you don't die, you won't live. He that dies to himself will be resurrected. And he that doesn't, won't. That doesn't sound like affirmative action to me, Sorry, that's the wrong word. That was the wrong word. That, those words go together in more of a political sense. It doesn't sound like sort of an affirmative style of living to me. It sounds like... But the gospel isn't that. It's, it's an affront to our best thoughts. It's, it's, a, it's a challenge to what you hoped for. But here's the thing, my friends. It's way better. Way better. By a million miles than anything this world can offer. You just have to go through the narrow gate to find the rich pastors, pastures of where you're meant to live. The rich pastors. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to go through the narrow grate so they can become rich. Ah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> the devil made me say that. Anyway, so with those um, less than pleasant thoughts, I leave you with the, <laughs> with, with the idea of uh, if you want to be a disciple, get ready for a rough journey, but get ready for the best journey of your life. Why would you want to just walk around a green park when you could be climbing mountains? Come on, get on board. So I wonder if we could just pray. Lord, we just uh, thank you that um, in all the challenges that you bring to us, that you have a really good purpose in mind, and that's to conform us to your image. We just thank you today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.